0: It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. What the pandemic has done, there's no doubt, is slowed life down. Uh, We're living in, at least in the short term, in the age of the slowdown. Um, Economics has slowed down. Uh, Life itself, uh, everything has suddenly, uh, suddenly changed from... Uh, The the accelerated nature of the life in the pre-pandemic. Now everyone is stuck, and I'm not sure if that's the right word given who we're going to talk to today, stuck in a slowdown. Uh, Danny Dawling is the professor of geography at at, at Oxford University and the author of, of what I think is a very prescient new book. He must have written it before the pandemic, but Perhaps there's something subconscious in his uh, ability to see into the future. Uh, His new book is called Slow Down, the end of the great acceleration and why it's good for the planet, the economy and our lives. Uh, Danny, is today's slowdown during the pandemic, is it a kind of a sneak preview of what life will be like for, for the rest of the century? Uh, No, these
1: are unusual times, Um, but one thing the panic does, the pandemic does, panic actually is quite a good word as well for it, it it helps us appreciate what a slowdown is because it's so sudden. We're not very good at seeing changes that take longer, changes that take years, or changes that take decades. We are incredibly good at seeing changes which are sudden, Um, and so this slowdown kind of illustrates to us the speed at which we were going, uh, but also that things do not have to be the same and it, and that they can change. And of course, they have been changing. That's the whole point of my book. I, I It took me six years and I finished it at uh, the last correction in January before uh, this pandemic really was, was a blip. Um, and what I've done is look at changes over decades and decades and the speed of change and noted that it is slowing. I didn't mean to do this. I was expecting half the things I looked at to be speeding up and half to be slowing down. So it's a book about the discovery. It. It's a book about actually finding no something other than what we thought was true appears to be going
0: on. So it's a slow book, um or at least it's quite a broken.
1: long book.
0: Yeah, it was slow to write
1: and it is quite a long book because uh, it got a bit exhausted, I, uh, exhaustive. I kept on looking for other things that could be speeding up. And, you know, it's and it's not saying that things are going down. This is crucial. It's saying that most things in, in terms of people, that is the, the numbers there are, um, how rich on average we are, how much we're in debt, most things are still going up. They're just not going up at the kind of speeds that they used to at various points in the last century.
0: The term that struck me in in your subtitle is the end of the Great Acceleration. So Hmm. since you're a professor of geography and you look kind of at history in in a meta kind of way, Hmm. what is or what was the Great Acceleration?
1: Uh, The Great Acceleration uh, was a period say from around about 1800 to around about 1960, about 160 years where acceleration became normal. And it still frames our way of thinking. So we still think, oh, more and more things will be discovered. We will go further and faster around the planet. We will leave the planet to colonize other planets. And that way of thinking had to come from somewhere. And it comes from a time when things were not just increasing, but increasing faster and faster. The simplest one is just us. Uh, The number of human beings went up from about a billion and it doubled to two, doubled to four. It's almost doubled to eight. And it accelerated every year on average. The increase was bigger than the year before, right up to around about 1968. But after 1968, the increases began to become less and less. Currently, it's only rising by about 1% a year. And it's projected to stop rising at some point within the next 80 or 90 uh, years. So So the acceleration was this period of human history. This period of incredibly rapid change, which had never happened before uh, and almost certainly cannot happen again. You can't have the kind of things that, that our grandparents, great grandparents, their parents, and their grandparents saw.
0: How ironic that the real legacy of 1968 may be the slowdown of uh, population given the age of free love. Um, Danny, uh, A few weeks ago, we had Paul Morland on the show, a demographer, the author of The Human Tide. I'm sure you know him, fellow geographer in many ways. He argues that demography is destiny. I'm not sure if it's his term, but it's a familiar term amongst demographers. Uh, Is that what you're saying? Is the core of your book the reason why The Great Acceleration is coming to an end because of demographic shifts, long-term, inevitable demographic shifts?
1: Uh, it's not that it's his destiny. Uh, in fact, I wrote, wrote a book uh, called um, Why Demography Matters with my friend Stuart Geetle-Baston in which the book begins by saying, Demography is not destiny, <laughs> and it's an argument that, that demographers have. We still have enormous agency and choice over what kind of a world we will live in and what it will be like. Um, it is not simply going to be a certain way because our numbers are slowing down. However, our numbers are going to slow down. That is that is now com- almost completely certain because in the last couple of years, the speed of the drop of fertility has actually accelerated itself uh, and fertility has dropped the fastest in the last few years in those places where it was highest. So all the kind of doubt um, about fertility slowdown is now over. It's a bit like climate change. If you remember... 15 or 20 years ago, there was quite a lot of climate scepticism. And then we got 10 really hot summers and the climate sceptics kind of disappeared. Uh, similarly with demography, we now know that the slowdown that began in 68 is absolutely solid. No leader anywhere in the world, no matter how they try and get women to have more, more children, is managing uh, to do it.
0: Uh, Danny, you, you use one of my favourite A words, agency. You're suggesting that none of this is inevitable, that it it comes out of human choice. And indeed, in your book, you begin with a couple of examples of people both in Greece and Japan, countries very different, far apart geographically, who have chosen to slow down. Is it ultimately a human choice here? Is it ultimately a matter of agency? Has the age of the great acceleration made us miserable as human beings?
1: Uh, Not necessarily Uh, miserable. That There's a famous graph about how we haven't become happier as we've become uh, better off. There's no need for us to become more miserable. Uh, One complicated thing about agency is that people often think it means, oh, I can change the world. Now, any individual's chance of changing the world is tiny. But that doesn't mean that in the aggregate, it is not people's behaviour and agency that matters. The clearest one about 1968, say I would say, is the increased agency of women. It is women who decided and got increasingly powerful so that they were able to choose to have uh, fewer children. Now, not just one woman, not a special woman. This, this was a, a huge, huge change over a century from a point where you know, where my grandmother was born, women were seen as subhuman in the UK, weren't allowed to go to university, there were hardly any, you couldn't have your own mortgage, to a situation a century on where the majority of our students in universities are, are women. Uh, so, and that is all about agency. that as any woman will tell us, that didn't just happen. Um, so the future we're going to get, the shape of it uh, will depend on, on agency and what we do, but it will not be a future in which we are consuming dramatically more and it will not be a future in which there are billions and billions and billions more of us that those things we can kind of draw a circle around and say the trend now looks pretty certain. Uh, on that but the the type of world we have um, there's there's nothing certain about whether it'll be a more equal world or not if we want a more equal world we'll have to fight for it Uh, it, it's not at all certain where we will be in the world will we move away from areas where there are water shortages which would be sensible where the world is going to heat up a bit or will we carry on being silly and living in places that were sensible to live in a hundred years ago but are less sensible to live in now. This this kind of thing is all up to us. Uh, You
0: you suggest in the book that deceleration has become the norm and and you argue that we need to stop seeing stagnation as an ill. Um, That's a political challenge, isn't it? I mean, every political party, both on the left and the right, takes it for granted that acceleration is still the core reality of our life and that they can deliver us. They may disagree on where we're going, but nobody embraces stagnation, not even the Greens, do they? So is this a political challenge? It's a political challenge. You're completely right.
1: Um, I mean, if you take one of the most left-wing prime ministers in Britain in recent years, Gordon Brown, who was the left of Tony Blair, even Gordon Brown wanted 2% growth uh, a year. And if you look at 2% GDP growth a year, you only have to run it forward over 50 years and you see incredible uncontrolled consumption going on. Um, So saying that actually dropping to half a percent a year or 0% or even slight falls in our productivity shouldn't be seen as a bad thing, is very hard for us to do because we have been educated Uh, with a belief that growth is good because it was good just a couple of generations ago. Um, and You can also get a course, you know, if you're getting too worried about it, you can get growth in different ways. Um, So just because I'm saying that your classic form of GDP growth, your classic form of material consumption, is slowing and looks pretty certain to carry on slowing, that doesn't mean that people can't be more creative in the future. It doesn't mean they can't do things that are very different to they do now it doesn't have to be boring but it will not be the kind of growth of the 1950s and 60s it won't be you know driving your chevy to the levee and you know getting a bigger house than your grandparents could ever have dreamed of that kind of thing has been slowing for so long that we should begin to accept that we're not going to go back to that again
0: what becomes of poorer societies in this world of this deceleration i mean it's all very well for us in the west to slow down We've got our Chevys. We've got our big Mm -hmm. homes. Uh, But what about Africa? What about poorer parts of Asia and Latin America? How are they supposed to deal with this great deceleration when it's still taken for granted, I think, around most of the world that things inevitably will get better?
1: Well, they will get better. And, of course, the big slowdown is GDP happened most in the richest countries. You know, Europe is contracting. Uh, The US, although before the pandemic crisis, GDP was growing. It was only growing for the richest 1%. It really wasn't wasn't shared out at all. Uh, China uh, was looking at 6% growth before this. So China was still coming up. Uh, Africa, in a way, is the most interesting. Uh, It it is the place where the balance of population is moving to. It's also the only place, one of the few places in the world that will actually have a surplus of young people. And as we begin to have fewer and fewer young people everywhere else, uh, yeah, it is hard not to imagine the greater spreading out of people from Africa to, to other places. But we find this really difficult to imagine now. Uh, and part of my frustration, and of course, you can't guess—you really can't guess the future. So the book is all about recent trends. But we have to accept the one thing you can say about the future is that if changes as it has been in the past, then things will occur which we think are almost impossible. But my favourite example is how people who are gay are treated now uh, compared to how, how you were treated if you were gay in my childhood. It would be incredibly hard uh, to have imagined a revolution that's occurred there. And we, we should be able to imagine a similar one about racist attitudes to immigrants. You think, oh, it's impossible that there'll be this spread out of, of uh, people from Africa to the rest of the world. It's only impossible if you think that the kind of racism and prejudice that we have now is going to carry on surviving at the rate it is now.
0: Danny, you're very cheerful. You're an optimist. Um, And do you think that the, and and I mean that in in a complimentary sense, um, but do you think the core of your optimism and perhaps the core of your book is is about us having to rethink our relationship to the environment? Because after all, the great beneficiary, I guess, of, of your slowdown will ultimately be the environment, won't it?
1: Well, it'll be us because of the environment if we continue to slow down as we are. And we had to slow down a lot, lot faster, by the way, for for in terms of the environment. There were five things in my book that weren't slowing down. Um, I measured thousands of things. The five things that weren't slowing down were the number of air flights a year, our total CO two emissions, which were accelerating, uh, the average temperature of the planet, and the number of university graduates moving around internationally. Okay, very rare, but but the, all of that was was about acceleration. So. We do need quite a big slowdown um, on those, but we've just seen that that is possible and we probably are not going to return to the kind of level of flying that that we had before.
0: For sure. I just saw a newspaper headline saying that uh, the, 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 the deep depression in the airline business won't change until 2022 at the earliest.
1: At the earliest, and also people can begin to ask themselves, why did they fly so much? What you have to remember is only a tiny number of us fly very much, a tiny proportion, even in rich countries. Most human beings who are born in the last year will never fly. Um, It's a a lovely statistic, that, to to understand. Most people who are born today, born last year, born a year before, they will never fly in a plane, uh, just under the way we were before. But over-optimism. It, it, it's not completely, that so I'm optimistic, is that we tend to surmount our problems. We also, and this is crucial, and it can make you a bit pessimistic, we don't see what the next problems will be. So we did not see uh, a century ago that one problem was very possible nuclear annihilation. There were a tiny number of people, Albert Einstein and not many others, who knew about the possibility for a nuclear bomb. And you can go right through to the hippies not being believed and so on in the 1950s and 60s, through to the point where we disarmed nuclear weapons. And that's an example of something being overcome. Or you can take climate change. At school, I'm 52 years old. When I was at school to pass my geography exams, I had to write that the world was cooling and we were going to be getting a nice age. Uh, you know, we really didn't see this coming. Now, what this tells you, of course, is there will be something else. And almost certainly it is something which we don't even imagine now. So if you want to be pessimistic, be pessimistic about the thing you don't know about. Don't be pessimistic about the things where you know what the problem is because that is where human beings have always, in our relatively short history, we're a very young species, but human beings have overcome the things that they think are impossible. You know, you need to worry about the unknown and yeah, you know, pandemic kind of helps you recognise that, but the book is full of references to pandemics and epidemics because these, these punctuate our history. Um, it, it's go on, sorry.
0: Well, before we get to the unknown unknowns, to to quote Donald Rumsfeld, um, do you think and this is a sort of a big question, uh, more of a philosophical one than a, a geographical or, or demographic one? But do you think? to deal with the the slowdown the end of this great acceleration, which had a profound impact on us as as a species do we need to change ourselves existentially might we need perhaps to rethink for example our relationship to the land and to nature as a species
1: uh we're already doing that in in many ways and you can see it in the difference in the attitude of different generations um to to what they think about the environment and land. Uh, We are going to carry on being a more urban species. The packing into cities doesn't reduce. The amount of wilderness in the world is increasing because we are in general abandoning uh, areas of low population density. And although in the book, I have examples of people who deliberately chose to move into such areas, they are rare and they will continue to be rare. However, what those people do is make such areas accessible so that when you spend most of your time in the city, but you want to go out of the city, there is somewhere you can go away to, which is empty, where you can be calmer. Um, And that is a different way of doing things from currently thinking, oh, to be happy, I must go and get a plane ticket and I must fly halfway around the world and I must lie on the beach or do this. Um, And that way of thinking has come largely from people being told that this will make you happy, from holiday operators and tour operators. But when we measure uh, the rate of happiness uh, that people have, we actually find that holidays don't make people happier. You just think they will. Uh, looking forward to a holiday makes you happy. Actually having one uh, doesn't, maybe because the anticipation was so high.
0: Let's end on the unknown unknowns. In the book, you you ask, what will people worry about in twenty? 20- to 22 now i don't think any of us are going to be around then so you can get it wrong danny but speculate <laughs> think wildly what, what could you imagine people worrying about in 2222?
1: uh i can give you one uh which is fertility rates never getting back anywhere near two because having a single child becomes really really normal which is fine but, and this has already happened in places like Hong Kong and Barcelona and, and so on, and Tokyo. If it becomes extremely normal, if you have children just to have one and having two is rare, then the fear in the future, um, the fear in the future will be about the population of particular places halving in one generation. And that is not a hard one to see. Though it, it seems a ridiculous problems to worry about now in a, in a planet where we still have population growth. But that, that kind of a, of, a, of a reduction would be uh, tricky to deal with. Uh, other than that, something we're currently doing, which is storing up a problem that we simply cannot see, and it will be something we're doing now that we didn't do 100, 200 years ago. You can spend a lot of time worrying about this. Uh, I once came up with a list of uh, 44 ways in which human beings thought the world was going to end, in which my favourite example was that the killer bees were going to come and sting us all to death. Um, we're very good at producing scenarios of Armageddon. Uh, it's, we're almost inbuilt to do it, which suggests it's a kind of survival mechanism to worry, to think what is going to get us all um and in that way by worrying about that we actually managed to spread all around the planet
0: well one way of 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 getting a sneak preview of your vision of 2222 of course is to read pd james's um, 1992 classic the children of men uh, what uh, which, which 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 imagines a world without fertility um, Danny, to end, uh, are there a couple of books that people might read uh, alongside uh, perhaps James' The Children of Men to imagine the future, since we're all stuck inside these days?
1: It's definitely worth seeing Peter James' The Children of Men. There's a film, by the way. If you if you uh, want an easier time than reading a book, um, the, the film is it, it, extremely good. Um, well, I was <laughs> just thinking about this. As, as people are stuck inside and have an awful lot of time, the very long books that you're never going to read normally, uh classic being War and Peace by Toy Story. you know, now is the time. If you don't do it now, you never will. But um, that is not necessarily an optimistic book, and people do need a bit of optimism. Uh, so the other book I'd recommend people reading is Rutger Bregman's Humankind, uh, which has only just been published. And it's a book about how human beings are actually inherently kind, most of us kind and good and generous, particularly in a crisis, and we've created a myth that says that in a crisis we are nasty and we'll fight each other, dog-eat-dog, Humankind by Buck Bregman actually shows that the opposite has been the case if you look back over the course of history.
0: You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at Lithub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.